Hi everyone, welcome to Step Zero. I wanna wish you all a Merry Christmas as well because I kinda of had a Christmas day today <laughs> preparing for this, uh, for this interview. Um, as many of you know, I'm an absolute science junkie and today we have a really, really interesting uh, conversation prepared for you, something very, very heavily science-based, so yay for me and yay for our audience. So I would like to introduce you guys to Elliot Brown, PhD, who is uh, a neuroscientist He's a senior research fellow at Charité, and he's also a mental health advocate. So I'm really, really excited to have this conversation with, with Elliot, not only because of the research that he has and obviously the scientific knowledge that he can share with us about mental health and the neuroscience behind mental health, but also his personal experience and his personal passion and connection to the topic. We do have something really great prepared for you, and uh, I am personally like a, like a child today. So Elliot, I think it's better if you start talking, otherwise I'm just gonna go on here rambling forever. Thank you so much for joining Step Zero. We're absolutely honored to have you here, and I would love it if you could take over a little bit and introduce yourself to our audience as well, your work, what you've been doing in the past years, and how you're connected to um, mental health overall. Sure, hi, uh, thanks so much for having me with uh, Step Zero. It's really cool initiative that you're working on. So I really feel it's a great honor and a real pleasure to be involved. And I'm really happy to support, support what you're doing as much as possible. Um, and yeah, I've been working in mental health research for just over 12 years or so. And in different aspects of mental health, um, I've worked a lot on schizophrenia and depression and looking at different types of treatment over the years um, and also how uh, people have problems in different aspects of functioning um, in schizophrenia and depression, how that's related to the brain. And I've also experienced mental health struggles myself, which I've only really relatively recently started to speak up about uh, openly. And it's taken me a lot of time, even though I've spent a lot of time in the past talking about trying to break stigma and trying to be open about our, our mental health. It's, it's even taken me a, a while to get over my own kind of personal barriers and my own self-stigma. And I had, um, my, I had a, a, a pretty big breakdown a couple of years ago. It wasn't the first, it was the, I had had a handful before, but this was the first time that I really went to seek professional help. And I even ended up in hospital and it was the first time that I started taking medication. And it was uh, really a bit of a kick in the butt to really say, okay, this is the time that I can really, that I need to start speaking up about it and I need to share my experiences uh, for the benefit of my own healing, but also to try to uh, help others too and uh, encourage other people to talk about it. And so recently I've been trying to find opportunities, I guess, like this to, to really to share my experiences and also to try to share my knowledge uh, about the, um, the brain and mental health and, and what happens in the brain when we have mental health problems. And uh, yeah, so this is, I guess that's why I'm here. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So do I. And, and before we get into that, I, I wanted to say thank you again, not only for being here, but also sharing your story. I, I know how hard it is. I have been there and, and a lot of people, you know, talk about removing the stigma in, in, in a bigger context, always, you know, removing the stigma at work. That's what we're also here to do. That's what we're also going to talk about or, or removing the stigma in society. But often the stigma is something that we impose on ourselves. 
And I think that's a context that we actually don't talk uh, enough about. That is just something that um, people just kind of take for, for granted, you know, like, oh, it's, it's okay to feel ashamed. It's okay to feel, you know, that I don't want to talk about it. And I think that type of personal stigma and vulnerability is sometimes even way more powerful than the actual stigma imposed on us. So thank you for opening up about that. I think that's incredible. And also for people as well who know that knowledge is power, you know, even with having that knowledge, it can happen to you. And I think that's really, really great to, to have you on board because I think your personal experience can actually help us understand more or even explain to us humans here <laughs> in scientific knowledge or language how and what happens in, in the brain when we're challenged with depression, burnout, whatever the specifics are. So let's talk a little bit about our brain and neuroscience. Can you tell us in, in basic terms a little bit what that means um, in the context of, of mental health or what goes on in our brain in that sense? We hear a lot about chemical imbalance, a lot of different things, terminology. I would love it if you could kind of make a little bit of order in our heads and in mine. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, it's, it's a pretty big topic, I guess, to handle, but, and, and I guess the world of mental health is a pretty broad and, and diverse topic too. Um, so I guess the way that we approach um, the neuroscientific study of, of, of mental health is really has for many years has been structured around focusing on specific diagnoses and putting people in pigeonholes according to to very specific diagnostic categories, um, which are kind of which has evolved a lot over the years. The, the the manuals that clinicians use to diagnose mental health disorders have gone through very many many different versions, even in the last. 20, 30 years. Um, and in fact, we're even now kind of moving away from this, this typical diagnostic categorization of mental health problems and trying to um, look at it more in terms of a functional um, categorization. So rather than thinking about symptoms, we're thinking more about kind of um, specific um, characteristics or, or functions that people have problems with. And then in terms of trying to treat them, that is in many ways kind of more useful to think about um, rather than just putting everyone under the umbrella of depression or, or anxiety. Um, because we, the more research we do in the brain, the more we learn how heterogeneous these diagnostic categories are. Um, so yeah, that's like a kind of, <laughs> a preamble or like a disclaimer I guess when, before even thinking about looking into the brain um, so yeah the I guess the complexity of how we understand mental health is is um, is related a lot to the complexity of how we study it you mentioned a couple of things that I think we don't uh, we don't talk about or our audience doesn't probably know a lot about. You talk about diagnosis versus functions, and I think most of us is familiar with a diagnosis. Let it be depression, um, anxiety disorders, whatever that might be. What about functions? Do you think that you can share maybe a couple of examples with us so that we better understand what exactly you mean by functions? Um, so. When we think about the brain, it also makes things much easier for us as neuroscientists to think about functions, because the typical experimental study that I would do is um, I do a lot with, um, I'm actually more in the field of a subfield of neuroscience called cognitive neuroscience. And that kind of thinks about, that comes uh, historically from the world of cognitive psychology, um, where we think about the brain as a series of processes and a kind of system 
um, of these different functions working together. And then cognitive neuroscience is like a kind of modern version of that where we start, we tried to utilize um, brain imaging methods to, to look at brain function and look at brain structure um, to try to understand um, yeah, how these kinds of processes or functions in the brain actually working and which parts, which parts of the brain are responsible for these different cognitive functions. So that's really driven a lot of the research in neuroscience of mental health. And um, when we talk about functions or dysfunctions in, in mental health disorders, um, we can break things down into these kind of different categories, which are also um, kind of related to specific brain networks. So, so for example, in depression, um, there's many different aspects of, of depression that we that characterize the, um, the, the 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 diagnosis, and some people experience different. Um, different symptoms more than others or have different more more impairments than others and so um, one thing I think that I'll talk a bit more about later is um, in depression there's one key network in the brain that's found to be abnormal is the reward network and this network is made up of deeper structures uh, called which are called the striatal regions which is made up of um, a collection of structures called the basal ganglia and this is really the hedonic center the pleasure center of the brain and this is connected highly to more frontal areas where frontal parts of the brain kind of uh, modulate the these more these straight or deeper structures so it's a more kind of um, like we, it, Daniel Kahneman talked about fast and slow thinking and this is kind of yeah, this this fast thinking would be these more like primitive, uh, deeper structures like the striatal regions, where um, you know there's like you might have imp impulsive kind of responses to things, and it's really the kind of you know this visceral feeling that you get of pleasure, um, and then depending on how you act on that is is driven by you know what how, what your prefrontal cortex decides on, and that tells that kind of regulates. The, these pleasure centers and that's more the kind of slow thinking I guess um, and yeah so that's just one example in, in depression also um, and in in things like addiction one area uh, one brain network that's really central to 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 um, addictive behavior and impulsivity and this kind of loss of self-control is um, this area called the cognitive control network and that's made up of, of also some prefrontal regions which in a similar way provide this kind of regulation or this this um you know, this modulation of deeper brain structures um, which feed back to areas like the uh, called the anterior cingulate cortex which is really crucial to picking up um like um, conflict or things that don't match in your environment um, and trying to resolve conflict um, and so yeah this is just just an example of how we kind of break things up and to make them easier to handle in terms of studying 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, I mean, obviously you're, you're bringing in a very, very strong scientific angle, but whenever you refer to also fast and slow thinking, when you talk about, um, you know, pleasure centers or reward centers, that has a lot to do with behavioral psychology as well when it comes to habit building, you know, how you actually, you know, build things out. And that's one of my favorite topics as well, which, which I don't think is being studied enough yet in terms of uh, the work environment. Um, what I really like is that you mentioned uh, the differences, you know, the different functions and how the brain difference for, uh, the brain reacts differently for everyone. And, and I think that's something that we wanted to talk about this. We mentioned that quite often, obviously not from a scientific angle, that, that mental health is very, very personal. Our brain is very personal. So it's going to be slightly different. You know, everyone experiences it differently. Um, we wanted to talk about, I think it was one of the topics that we talked about beforehand, is a little bit of the identification uh, of, of, uh, of depression. I think in one of our prep conversations, you referred to high-functioning people and their, their connection with, with depression. Also, potentially, this one, one article, a reference that you brought into us, Smiling Depression. Would you mind telling us a little bit about this? Because a lot of companies that we're in touch with, they always talk about, uh, talk to us to uh, talk to us about this. It's like, yeah, no, no one, everyone's happy, everyone's good. You know, no one has any problems. We don't, we don't need to do anything, right? We're already good. But I think it's very important that it's much deeper than that. That we realize that it's much deeper than that. So I would love to get your take on that, and just to to make sure that we really touch on how depression can be very much in your face and very, very hidden at the same time. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's something that's really um, very close to, to me personally, because I feel like I've gone through a lot of these experiences of this kind of smiling depression. And I feel like it's something relatively new that started to get talked about only really in the context of how our culture related to mental health has changed over the years and people and having more advocacy and, and having more openness about talking about mental health then these kinds of um, more atypical um, categorizations of depression start to come out because what we've been more familiar with is this kind of very clinical uh, type of depression where you typically um, uh, have a lack of functioning, you, you're not able to keep your job, you, you might lose your friends, um, you know, you will be stuck inside, you won't be able to get out of bed. Um, you would be on medications, psychotherapy, end up in, you would be in hospital, and those, that kind of trajectory is much more, I think, familiar and also has, has been more recognised in terms of research because it's really what we see um, in terms of the, the, the people that access the healthcare system. And other than that, it's difficult to really gauge what else is going on in the world. Um, so yeah, I think this the reason why this kind of type of smiling depression hasn't been picked up in the past is because it's really like a, a like a high level a high functioning type of depression where um, you can have you can have people like me where you would be able to still go to your job every day um, you know present yourself in a relatively positive manner. Um, you would smile and laugh and make jokes with friends and colleagues and you could still maintain a relatively healthy um, social lifestyle. Um, and on the surface, it could look like, you know, you know you're actually doing fine, but behind, it could all be a facade, you know, a kind of mask where you're hiding um, your true experiences. And a lot of it could be due to self-stigma, 
and um, also just not really recognizing this as a depression uh, because we are able to continue on with our lives and there we'd never reach that point where we say okay we need to change something because it just goes and that, that's I, that's really really um, dangerous um, because it's it's something that goes under the radar which doesn't get picked up and it could get worse and worse and worse over time and it could um, like for me it reached a point of crisis where I kind of had clues earlier on that um, I was starting to go down this road um, but I never really addressed it and so it's it's dangerous because if you're not able to pick up on this early on then it, you end up getting into crisis uh, having more likely to end up into this crisis um, and I think it's really difficult to pick up on whether you're going through this um, there's a lot of characteristics that you can kind of identify um, um, things like um, having the exhaustion where you have this feeling that maybe you're like pretending or you're putting on a mask um, or even a mask for yourself telling yourself that you're okay to try to get it, kind of fake it till you make it um, and you know like having the feeling that it's easier to cheer up other people than yourself um, and feeling like that you can still laugh and and joke around but kind of maybe feel empty inside and the best way really to to identify this is to um, there's a lot of very, uh, well validated tests online that you can do which are relatively short um, yeah, I think if you go Google mental health America screening tests, you can do them free online and they give you a very quick overview of, of how you're doing um, uh, with your mental health on different aspects of depression, anxiety um, and, and many other things. That's, um, yeah, first of all, I don't know what, what I give into first, like the, the fact that I have to admit that I know exactly what you're talking about, you know, the fake it until you make it master of um faking uh is, is 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 definitely something that i can personally relate to you know it's something that you keep going it gives you a certain amount of com comfort you know to be able to keep going but you don't understand how you go from a stable not even highs anymore how can you fall down so much and the next day you somehow get yourself together you know you you get into work and you're again one of the most positive people and and people don't recognize it but when you hit that moment or that stage where where you say like okay something needs to change that's like really far down the road and that's really really hard to come back from um and and the way you described it and what it was i i, I could personally relate to it a lot it took quite a while um for me and of course for us as well to really admit what was going on we had to take a break and and you have to be tough but i can tell you that that exhaustion that you're referring to that's that's really an exhaustion that I think a lot of people cannot relate to. You know, like the level where you're in, it's how are you ever gonna wake up feeling energized again? And you keep pushing yourself, you keep kind of pushing your limits. At least that was my reaction to it. I constantly started doing sports and I overdid it just to prove it, you know, that you're okay. Very counterproductive, don't recommend it to anyone out there. Um, but it's just a reality of things. You know, a lot of the things that you talk about, I think a lot of people can relate to and we will be sure just to make sure that our audience knows as well that we reference the links as well in the podcast notes so that we can kind of review um or, or our guests can just come go in and, and and take a look and, and click on where they're where they're interested 
So we talked about, you know, exhaustion. We talked about uh, mental health. And we still have two topics, actually, that, that we wanted to touch on. And I want to make sure that we, we definitely look into that. And one of the points that you and I talked about before in the uh, discussions is, is what can we do if we recognize these signs of fatigue and, and exhaustion in one of our employees? You know, you glimpse something, you figure that something's going on. It's quite hard to open a conversation like that. You know, it's, it's quite hard to be the one to say like, hey, let's wait a second. Can I help? Are you okay? So how do you actually... What would, what would you recommend to companies and managers wanting to be ready, say, I'm committed to do what's best for my colleagues, my employees. How do I do that? How do I start a conversation when I see these things? What's uh, your recommendation to these people and companies? So, um, so I guess you could look at it on two different levels. Uh, one, firstly, the community organizational level. And what I've learned from previous experiences is that the best first step really is to look into what is already out there, what's already in place, um, what policies are there, what kind of um, support there is for mental health. Um, and mental health is considered a disability in, in most places as equally as any other disability. And so in terms of getting support or benefit and financial benefit, um, if you do need to take time off work, most many places there is something to 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 provide you support for but it's i think for me especially i i had in the back of my mind that okay mental health is something different um than than uh than than a physical disability but actually i know in germany um it's really all under the same umbrella in terms of employment and and yeah, looking into what your organization can offer in terms of um, providing support when returning to work, if you do need to take time off work um, after burnout or, or uh, uh, other mental um, health problems. Um, and yeah, I think that's a really good first step to, to, to try to get engage, like how much, um, where to start kind of trying to make a change if you do want to make a change within your organization. Um, or even within your department or within your, with your colleagues. And, and yeah, it does really, it could often require a big shift in organisational culture, um, which, which is something that could be really difficult, but you could start off, um, I think always starting off with something small is the best way to, because it's easy to, I found, to get overwhelmed because I have this, this passion and this desire being a mental health advocate, I want to change the system, you know, I want to go to politicians and like change policies, um, but that's going to take years and years. And um, the more I've kind of, more time I've spent thinking about how I can make a change, the more I come to the conclusion that, okay, I can really make a change around uh, with the people around me, within the, my workplace, within my friends, within my family, my work colleagues. Um, and so in terms of, for, for actual organizations, I think just create a safe space for people to, to talk, for their employees to be able to share their experiences and without being judged. Um, maybe something like a mental health coffee checkup or, or just um, an, an opportunity, um, maybe even outside of the workplace to, 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 to encourage people to get into this discussion and, and um, Another way to increase engagement could be to even organize events 
around mental health and even have other people externally maybe to talk about their own lived experiences um, and to, to have events where people could also share their own experiences um, and also finding someone who could be willing to kind of lead this initiative maybe like an, a mental health ambassador or like a mental health champion who could who would be able to maybe help organize these events or to, to generate more opportunities for, for conversation um, and also to just to try to normalize I guess a lot, a lot of the reducing stigma is really about normalizing mental health issues and there's many many ways you could do that I think not just through talking to people but also being creative um, you know using art the arts to, to express um, your feelings or your thoughts um, and maybe even having messages around the workplace about um, some you know how how many people are actually going through mental health problems and, and you know to to reduce that stigma and to help people think that it's not something that if they are experiencing these problems it's not just them there's other people going through it too um, and yeah on the individual level I think this is also a really good starting point is just maybe if you if you if you feel like maybe you've gone through some mental health struggles in the past or now and you've never really spoken to anyone about it a good place to start is to really try to think about who within your social network do you trust the most and do you feel that would be the least judgmental um, and maybe start with that and start a conversation and and chances are when you start talking about your own mental health experiences who other people are going to start sharing their own too and then it's going to you know it's like a this this is this kind of snowball once you start building that conversation um and then you could i guess move progressively from from people that you're really familiar and comfortable with to someone who maybe is a bit less familiar um and then eventually work your way onto maybe starting that conversation with your work colleagues or with your even with your manager um and yeah, I think you'll. I think you'll be surprised when you how many people um, also open up when you start this conversation too. And I think that the more you do it, the more it kind of reinforces. Um, you know, you get this positive reinforcement by getting this feedback by other people sharing their experiences. And I think the you know the more the more feedback you get, the more confidence you have to speak up about it even more. And yeah, it just like snowballs so yeah sharing your personal story has 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 a massive impact and i think a lot of people you know forget it that's that's one of the reasons to share that between between us is is, is why we started you know step zero as it was because we opened up by accident or by choice and we realized how people connected and start, started opening up, up about their stories as well. And it helped us and it helped them too. And then we realized the power of connection that's based on this level of vulnerability or connection or honesty in that sense. And, and I think that's what we need to keep doing, you know, on every level. It starts with the person, the context is gonna change or the environment might be different. But at the end of the day, we all need to do that. We need to start talking about it more. And, and I feel that, especially with everything going on in the world right now, this is the time to make a change. You know, we're, we're, we're cleaning things up. And I think it's, it's, it's so important um, to, 
to just strive for the better and to be the better version of ourselves. And I love the reference and I would like to emphasize that one more time before, you, before we move on to the next question as well. The, the, the similarities between physical and mental uh, disability, that the, the resources are there. It's just not so often spoken about. So it's very, very important to reach out. That's why we need to start conversations with ourselves or with each other as well, because we need to kind of get the idea what those resources are and how we can get support. As you said, Germany is a very, very good country when it comes to that. I was also very, very surprised in terms of the amount of support, the amount of, or the level of awareness that the government actually has also when it comes to mental health specifically, even reintroduction to work. So I think these areas are extremely important that we mention and that coming from you, I think it, it cannot get more credible. You mentioned something very, very important um, that was related to motivation and how people with potential anxieties, depression, or mental health challenges perceive, understand, feel, live motivation differently. And that's something really, really important because, again, one of the things that we talked about, um, I'm one of those people who love sports. You know, sports is one of my meditation. I need to be out, I need to be there, and it's, get, it, it's gonna get better. The moments when I realized that I don't have energy to do what makes me happy, even though I had, that's all I can think of. I want to stand up. I want to go like, that's what I think of when I go to bed and I wake up with the same thought, but I just can't. And it's not going there. And I don't know what to do. And I'm like, am I not motivated? Am I not disciplined enough? You know, you start becoming very, very hard on yourself. And I know for a fact that a lot of this happens in the work context, private context, in many different ways. How can you help us understand this a little bit better? What goes on in an individual and, and how that is related to motivation and how the two are connected? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's really something super important because it's has such a, like you said, it has such a huge impact on our, on our daily lives and, and um, just being able to get out of bed and start the day you know, there's, it's, if you can't get out of bed, then there's so many things that you're already just immediately uh, rejecting. Um, and so, uh, yeah, a lot of the work in, in the neuroscientific work in, in motivation and depression relates a lot to the reward regions, as I was mentioning before. Um, and they're really tightly linked, um, this, this kind of idea of pleasure um, and motivation. Um, we know in in depression that a lot of the, these these reward centers in the brain are tend to be underactive. Um, so if you don't really enjoy things as much as you do when you're not depressed, then there's no real reason for you to kind of go out there and have this drive to 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 seek um, these rewards and um i guess that's a lot to that's this link between this reward processing and this hedonic um evaluation of, of these uh the stimuli in the environment and how that's related to this lack of motivation in, in uh, depression um and yeah i think it's an it's a really important message to to understand that because when you do go through a depressive episode um, or at least I've also experienced this when you you your motivation drops down um, and that can lead to these feelings of guilt and um, you know w worrying about um, 
you know, say, say you do have to take time off work and then you start to feel guilty about all the tasks or the emails that you're not replying to or the, how your work is getting left behind and, um, you know, how people may be judging you. Um, and so, the, but then at the same time, even though there's all these negative thoughts that are associated with this lack of motivation, it's it's important to understand that this is actually a biological change in the brain um that this is not just us like being lazy and if we try to fight that um you know on our own that can be really really difficult and um you know, things like medication and psychotherapy are going to help us a lot to to give us this boost um and it's um so i think it's really important to 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 keep that in mind so that we don't beat ourselves up about not being able to get out of bed or not being able to go to work today or not being able to keep our kitchen clean you know um there's especially for people who have this kind of smiling depression who are relative who are relatively high functioning um often those types of people may be really high performing um and are really um um, motivated to to pursue their career and they're really um you know uh, set their standards really high and so that can be a kind of very dangerous combination where you feel you know your standards are really high um but then you go in, when you go into a depressive episode then this guilt becomes much more amplified because of the way that you kind of have approached your life before and um so yeah, I think it's a really important message. But on the other hand, it's also important to think that we can still change our biology um, through different ways, not just through medication, but also through professional psychotherapy. And even some self-help tools can also be beneficial to some people, depending on how severe their depression might be. Um, yeah. Well, I think there's there's no probably better way to summarize what we wanted to talk about today. I think there's no better way to, to really sum it up together. I think what is very, very important for any company or any professional listening to us is, is something that we don't do quite often. And I think we have all been on the giving and the receiving end of it as well, is even if someone's high performing and a top performer and doing great, do check in with that person as well. Check in with every single individual on your team. Uh, we're humans, we can go through different, uh, different stages. And as Elliot mentions as well, um, there can be biological uh, processes going on in our brains and our bodies that, that, that make us feel the way we do or, or put us in a position that is really, really hard for us to control. But it's extremely important, as Elliot mentioned, that there's help out there. There's ways to, to um, improve the situation, self-help tools, psychotherapy, um, uh, medication. There's a lot of different things. In order to get there, you need to speak up. So I think I can say that in the name of Elliot as well and myself, it's time to speak up, share your story, ask for help, reach out to us. Um, one of our, our lovely guests in, in some of the previous podcasts as well, she actually said that you would be surprised how many more people are willing to help you than you actually think. So please do reach out and, and get that community and conversation going. 
And I'm extremely happy to tell you guys as well that this is not the end of the conversation with, with Elliot. We're definitely coming back uh, for, for a second podcast as well. I would love to encourage you, all our listeners, to share questions or anything that you might have for the upcoming conversations. But just a bit of a teaser. Uh, I'm already overly excited about that. So this is horrible what's happening to me today. Um, there's going to be a lot talking about physical activity social interactions, it's going to be nutrition, we're going to be talking about exercise, neuroscience and nutrition, so a lot of different things, healthy habits, healthy brain habits at work, a lot of things that really come together and can really influence your life at work, in the workplace and outside of the workplace as well. So we're extremely excited to have you back, um, Elliot, hopefully very, very soon. Um, I think this conversation today was extremely insightful and, and very, very scientific, which just you know, made me feel like a person in Disneyland. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, opening up about everything that you've gone through and really making this conversation, you know, as scientific it was, as personal, as, as easy to understand as possible. I think I'm personally taking a lot of things away from this that I would love to research on as well. And that's something that I want to assure our audience of as well, that we'll make sure that we reference resources, potential options, uh, articles, references, anything that Elliot can share with us as well um, in the podcast notes. And I would love to draw your attention, guys, as well um, to the fact that Elliot does lots of speeches. He does a lot of uh, lectures and seminars about this topic, workshops as well. So I recommend you guys to take a look at his LinkedIn profile and really tune in for these conversations. Many, many different aspects. We're absolutely fans of that for, for a number of different reasons. Uh, obviously, being a fan of, of science and people standing behind the topic of mental health is one of them. But as you might have seen as well, Elliot is extremely personable, approachable. So we really, really recommend you guys to reach out and have that conversation going. Elliot, I cannot wait to have you back. I think I can speak in the name of Matteo and myself as well, that we're very, very honored that you have agreed, and we can't wait to keep the conversation going. And thank you so much for joining us. And uh, for all the Steps Hero family out there, I promise we're going to keep it scientific moving forward. And thank you so much for tuning in, and we can't wait to have you back for the next episode.